0: Good morning. morning. Oh, it's so good to be here. Of course, I see many of you individually, but it's good to collectively see you all here. Man, it's been a while since I've been up here. Man. We are going to be spending our time in first Thessalonians chapter four, verses 13 to 18, what we just read. So let's pray. Lord, thank you so much. For the opportunity for us to gather together and to learn from your text, Lord, our destiny as believers in Christ. Thank you, Lord, for the hope that we do have. I pray, God, that we would be instructed, encouraged, admonished, strengthened, Lord, and that overall you would be glorified as we gaze upon your face in Scripture. We love you so much, Lord, for it's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Okay, I think I remember how this works. I'm supposed to point it there, right? And I am pointing it there. One more. Go. So it's like flashing. Is thats that... Is that is that unusual or what? Maybe I'll just let you guys do it. How about that? Now that's the, there we go. All right. The pre-trib rapture. What we're going to be doing is we're going to be looking at some counterpoints to the pre-trib rapture. And then we're going to be looking at a text that deals with these counterpoints. Okay. Just by way of of admission, I am a believer, a staunch believer, perhaps maybe even overly zealous, of this particular doctrine. I believe that the Bible teaches it. And I believe that it's relevant concerning especially some of the things that are going on right now concerning the world and the spirit of the age. I am convinced that we should not only be a body of Christ that should teach and believe in the salvation of man by way of Christ. I also believe that we should be a church that promotes eschatology. I don't think we spend a lot of time on that. The Word of God teaches it. We should read it and believe it because He's given it to us to know. Let's... Start with the doctrine of the rapture. Let's talk a little bit about that. Now, if you've been in my classes, as some of the students here have been. I see some of my students here. You know that I don't like to talk about a subject unless I define terms. Right? Because I don't want to take it for granted. If I'm talking about something, you know what I'm talking about. Right? So, let's talk about the doctrine of the rapture. It is the teaching or instruction that is found within the $200 word known as eschatology. It's just the study of the last things. And the subject that the living believers will meet the Lord with the saints who were dead in the air. That's right. Literal, physical air. To be with him. That is the doctrine of the rapture. Okay? It finds its subject in the doctrine of last things. Okay? When it comes to this particular doctrine, especially with things concerning end times events, there's always this subject of what is referred to as timing. What is the timing of the rapture? When will this occur? This has been the question, to you know, subject of many books, right? Many commentaries, things like that. But what does timing mean? Well, it's just simply put, are there any signs... That we should be looking to to observe that this event is going to take place. That's timing. Should we be looking for signs in the sky? Should we be looking for earthquakes? Should we be looking for a mark? Um, these are what we refer to as time, timing, okay? A couple of other uh, associated terms that I kind of want us to keep in mind as well. So we have eschatology, the doctrine of the last things. We have uh, timing, right? Here's some more associated terms here involved in this doctrine of last things. One of them is the great tribulation. I am now referring to it as the great affliction because that's exactly what it is. A period of unprecedented time of severe affliction and persecution of the saints by the hands of what is known as the false Messiah or the conqueror in Revelation. He's also known as the beast. Okay? It is unprecedented. Okay? This isn't just a here and there type of persecution. It is, it is by the hundreds of thousands. The millions. Okay? The wrath of God. The wrath, the ordigay of God. This is the active dispensing of God's anger on those who are unbelievers. Okay? The wrath of God, I'll just give you the, just give you the skinny. The wrath of God Is not for believers. By the way, I did not mention this. If you find a point, I always have to do this at Open Door, because you guys are very quiet. Very much like the the fellowship I'm at. If there is a point that resonates with you, okay? (laughs) I didn't even have to finish the sentence. Josh, you're right there with me. If there's a point that resonates with you, a hearty amen, praise the Lord, a hallelujah, don't worry, I'm not going to think you're charismatic, even if the person to the left of you might think you are. I'm not, okay? You're, you're okay, you're fine here, you're in good company. Okay, here we go. The wrath of God is the active dispensing of God's anger, God's fury on those who refuse to believe, okay? Amen. Then we have the Day of the Lord. The Day of the Lord is associated with the with the wrath of God. It, this phase speaks of this particular period in time that these things will take place. This includes extraordinary, awesome, terrible, and I mean like terrible as in oh my oh my goodness experiences that take place at this time. The world will have never seen anything like these things. And never will. Pre-tribulation. What do I mean when I say pre-tribulation? Pre-tribulation simply is the doctrine or the teaching that instructs that the ecclesia, the called out ones, we... Translate that as the church, but it really is the called out ones. The ones who are called out will be caught up before the period of what is known as the seventh year affliction begins. The seven year tribulation is reserved and set aside for the nation of Israel. It is also reserved for the nations and God pouring out his wrath on the earth. It is reserved for those who do not believe. I want to underscore this. Okay? We'll talk about this when we get to the end here. It's very important. Let's look at some counter arguments. Perhaps you've heard them. Perhaps you hold them. I'm not going to talk about the ones who hold them here if there are some. But let's look at some counter-arguments against the pre-trib rapture, I believe, I'm convinced, unless of course I'm out of touch, which could be possible, um, that there are at least four of them. Okay. One of them is called the non-eminency of Christ. That Yes, it says that Christ is going to return but we shouldn't teach that Christ is going to return at any moment. Maybe, excessively in the future. But you know, he's not. He maybe not. Re- he's probably not going to return when Doctor Smith is up here teaching, and boom, we're all gone, right? This is what a particular person says about the non-eminency of Christ. There are not the idea that no prophecies are required to be fulfilled. Before Christ returns specifically for the church, the idea that Christ can or will return at any moment to receive the church to himself, but will not make his stand on the earth for another seven years. The problem with this teaching is that it isolates certain passages related to Christ's second coming and ignoring the context and the plain meaning of the text. Simply put, that me as a pre-tribulationalist, in order for this to work, I have to ignore certain passages. Okay? I have to omit them. Yeah. That is this individual's critique or criticism of um, pre-trib rapture. The second one, or counter-argument, is the coming Antichrist. And uh, against popular belief, um, uh, our current leader is not the Antichrist. As a matter of fact, if he was the Antichrist, I would praise the Lord because he's the most sorriest one there is. Matter of fact, he's so amazing, he he probably won't even know if he was the Antichrist. (laughs) Am I the Antichrist? I guess so. Let's look at this particular perspective here. No one is arguing that Christians should not be looking forward to the return of Christ. That's what we're looking for, right? But we are also to be alert for the signs of his coming. Antichrist is just one of the many things we are told would precede Christ's return. But having said that, the scripture makes it crystal clear that the Antichrist will be revealed before Jesus. So folks, we are we ought to be not only looking for the return of Christ, but also this Antichrist. Hmm. Okay. The third counter-argument for pre-trib rapture is escaping tribulation. This is probably the most common one, right? This is, uh, again, another... Uh, One of these quotes here says in the midst of all of these tribulations, the church has endured Western Christian, specifically those in the United States of America, have escaped any real threat of their existence. This is the reason why this has become popular, because we we own, you know, two or three cars. We have properties. We drive Volvos. Right. And because of that, we are comfort. We we live in comfort and and we, we don't have any real idea of what affliction is. That's the idea. There could be numerous reasons for this. Two possibilities that come to mind that God has protected the church in the West so we can give aid and comfort to those who suffer these persecutions. Or two, we, those in the West, really don't have any strong convictions about our faith. And therefore, our enemies are not threatened by our presence. Can you believe that? I believe in the pre-trip rapture because I don't like affliction. I don't like uh, uh, to be persecuted. So I adopt this seemingly, in this individual, this concocted ideology because I'm a Westerner and I love Vovos. Not really. This is looking bad for us. Multiple comings is the last one. The last counterpoint to pre-trib rapture. Here's another quote here. It says, historically speaking, the church has always been looking forward to the second coming. Now that we're told there is a second coming called the rapture and a third coming of Christ in judgment. It's ironic, however, that the pre-tribulationalists won't call Christ's coming in judgment the third coming. So the argument here is that we believe in multiple comings. Christ is going to come, he's going to take his church, Christ is going to come again, put his foot down, start the rain on, he's going to do all these things, right? I believe that all of these four arguments can be addressed in this passage. All of them. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 to 18. The one that we just uh, looked at, the one that we just uh, all uh, all verbalized together. Let's take a look at it again. Paul, writing to the saints of Thessalonica, okay, says this. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren. About those who are asleep, so that you do not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that those who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from the heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God and the dead, and Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Wonderful passage. Great, great content here that Paul is giving to the saints of Thessalonica. Concerning their destiny, as a matter of fact. Let's look at some observations from the text. Let's rewind the tape and go back to verse 13 and walk through this text. Very interesting things here once we take a look at the passage and some of the language that, that Paul uses to explain this doctrine. One, Paul did not want the saints of Thessalonica not knowing. Hey. Okay? Ah the negative part of the negative particle from the Greek language gnosis the rude word for that to not know he wanted them he wanted to inform them so that they will not be uninformed. He wants them to know not knowing concerns the ones who are asleep in the Greek text. This is an articular. Participle. What does that mean? It just makes a distinction of the group that he's talking about. Okay, the ones who are asleep. Okay, these are those saints who have died. Those ones who are asleep. Those ones who have passed on. Okay, very simple. See, not too, not too hard. It's easy. Paul gave the result of the use of the conjunction in a. Now, it says, For we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that... That's a result, a preposition of result. So that the saints of Thessalonica will not have extreme sorrow. So they will not... Grieve as do the rest of the ones who have no hope. What a sentence. Paul writes that the reason that he doesn't want them to be uninformed is so they don't grieve like the ones who have no hope. The word for hope very fascinating word is the word Elpis not Elvis okay Elpis Elpis is a fascinating word every time this word is used within the New Testament text it always refers to the future that our hope is not in this present life but the future The promises of God outlined in his text is what gives us hope so that we grieve. Paul doesn't write that we shouldn't grieve at all. Did you catch that? We can cry when those before us go on and we miss them. He says that we grieve with hope. The hope that we will see those who have passed on again. Wow. We're not even two-thirds of the way in the passage. We could, we could spend the whole morning talk about this. Paul pointed to the saints of Thessalonica back to the doctrine, and Paul were convinced of this word, amen. this word means that the doctrines that one is assured of, We are assured of this, folks. We have a hope because we have a living God. Amen indeed. Paul points the saints of Thessalonica back to this in verse 14. For if we believe, if we believe, that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with them those who've fallen asleep in Jesus. The saints of Thessalonica, Paul points back to the fact that we have a hope that as Jesus died and was resurrected, even so those who have died in Christ will be resurrected also. Oh, but it gets better. It's so much better. How can it get better? Well, let's read. Paul said that God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep through. That's the instrumental cause, folks. Through Jesus Christ himself. Verse 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Folks, those who have passed on in Christ, they will be with him. This is the information that we have that Paul is writing to the saints of Thessalonica so that we don't grieve like those who have no hope. We have hope. And that hope is outlined in the text. Paul affirmed his instruction by the word of the Lord. This is interesting. I don't have, I, man. Well, I, your your pastor will have to come back and invite me to talk about the word of the Lord. Fascinating text here. I'm not going to get into it just yet, though. Okay, but we can say this though that Paul indeed got this straight from Christ. He didn't get this from some fancy imagination. He didn't get this from, you know, he was kind of thinking and musing, doodling on a a, a piece of papyri. No, no, he got this straight from Jesus, our Lord and master. He got this from him. Paul affirmed this instruction by the word of the Lord. This means he received it straight from Christ himself. Don't you know what that means? That means this word that Paul is writing is as good as Jesus saying it. Man. I don't know about you. I'm having fun up here. (laughs) This is amazing. What a text. This information was given to the saints in Thessalonica. It's like he's saying, hey, saints of Thessalonica, look, you could take this to the bank. I didn't get this from my own self. I got this straight from the top, straight from him. Wow. Let's keep reading. Verse 16. Paul mentions the living ones. Now, what are those? The ones who remain. He says this in verse 15. For I say to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. This is interesting here because in this particular text paul uses the double negative ukme now uh we use it in our english it doesn't sound very good right but this is an emphatic it they will not no never certainly not sometimes as it's translated we will not the ones who are alive and remain will not precede the ones that are fallen asleep the ones who have fallen asleep get the fast pass they get to go they get to go ahead of the line and this will not be broken wow Ukme will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Then we see the living ones who remain and the ones who have fallen asleep. These two groups here, right? Let's keep it going. Paul used the emphatic with the pronoun and the designator Altos Lord altos, altos Ha Kurios. Himself the Lord an emphatic uses the pronoun at the beginning the designator in the middle the the, the subject at the end to reference that he himself will do this verse 16 for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout Paul begins to outline the process of how this is going to occur how this is going to happen A summons or or an announcement is made by the voice of an archangel. We do not know who this archangel is. The the, the scripture does not tell us. We cannot presuppose or presume that it's an archangel when the scripture doesn't tell us this. Okay? But a summons or announcement is made with the voice of the archangel and with the shofar. We, We translate that as trumpet. But if you actually look at the association with the Greek text and the Hebrew text, it actually is related to the word shofar. Okay? Salpigs is the Greek word, but it's related to shofar. So it is the trumpet of the shofar of God. An announcement or a proclamation is given. The Lord himself will descend from the sky. And the dead in Christ, verse 16, they will rise first. That goes right back to verse, six, to verse 15 with the double negative, the ukme. Then Paul turns to the other group. The ones that are dead in Christ, they will rise first. Then Paul turns to the other group and mentions the living The ones who are remaining, again, another articular participle, again, defining who this group is specifically. The ones who are alive. Together with them and will be caught up. The root word is the word harpazo. I love this word. It means to snatch. To snatch, literally, from destruction. It's also used in Philippians 2, concerning the nature of Christ, that Christ did not, he uh, says in the, in, he was found in the form of God, but not, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, right? Something to be seized. But in this context, Paul uses the word harpazo to talk about being caught up, being snatched, to meet The Lord in the air. Now what's interesting is, is, what's fascinating is, is Paul writes this in the third person. Third person plural. We'll talk about that later. Okay? Paul mentioned the clouds. This cloud is associated with the glory of God. If you actually go back and look at all the texts that uh, talk about clouds, it refers to regular clouds too. But mostly when it's dealing with God, it's talking about the Shechaniah glory of God. That's really what it's about. And then Paul mentions the location of where the saints of Thessalonica are in Christ. He says, in the atmosphere, verse 17, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. We going up, y'all. That's pretty neat. I can't do that myself. We are all going up to be with him in the atmosphere folks again Paul got this straight from the word of the Lord he got this from Jesus himself Paul then stated that those who are asleep and the living ones the ones remaining will always be with the Lord verse 17 and then he wraps it up with verse 18 therefore Comfort one another with these words. Isn't that fascinating? That when one grieves, that another's law, that another's gone, that this is an imperative. That when saints who mean a lot to us go before us and we are sad and we are grieving, this should be comfort to us. We should remind ourselves of this all the time. Oh, we should be a church of eschatology. Because that's where our destiny is. Let's look at these, let's return to these counter arguments. How about that? How does this. Ver, how do these verses address, address the counter arguments? Well, let's take a look at the non eminency of Christ, right? That we well, he might be coming soon, but maybe sometime incessantly in the future. We shouldn't be saying that he should be he's becoming like today or any moment, right? Okay. Well, let's look at some of the details of 1 Thessalonians and address this issue. Paul uses the first person. Plural, along with the saints of Thessalonica. Notice, notice, but we do not want to be, we do not want you to be informed. Verse 13. About those who are asleep. So that you will not grieve. Verse 14. For if we believe. Verse 15. For we say to you. That we who are alive and remain. Wait, he includes himself in the group, folks. That we who are alive and remain will not precede those who've fallen asleep. Verse, seven, for verse 17. Then we who are alive and remain. What does that tell you? That tells you that Paul had his eyes on this event. That's what it tells you. He was expecting this. It demonstrates that Paul was anticipating this event while he was living. He doesn't mention any carnage in the text. He doesn't mention any signs in the heavens in this text. He doesn't mention anything like that. He mentions the appearing of Christ. And that's it. Paul mentions the same order in 1 Corinthians 15. I wish we had time to get to it, but we don't. Man. Paul does not mention any signs that he... Or the saints of Thessalonica ought to be looking to. Like in Matthew 24, that passage refers to Israel. This passage refers to the called ones, The saints. He mentions nothing about that. Don't you think that if we were going to be in the tribulation, that Paul would kind of mention that? And Especially here. Hey guys, we're going to go through it. Y'all better buckle up. It's going to be rough. But then Christ is going to return. So that's cool. He doesn't say anything about that. There's no blood and guts language mentioned like in Matthew 24. That is present in this text. By the way, need I remind you? He got this straight from Christ himself. That's important. In other statements, in other epistles, Paul mentions the saints are eagerly awaiting. Eagerly awaiting. This is a really cool word, by the way. Abidechomai. Eagerly awaiting. Standing on your hands and, 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 and kind of going, okay, okay. Is it coming? Is it coming? Is it coming? Is it coming? No, don't, don't laugh. That's exactly what it is. That's exactly what the I bet you'll remember this word, won't you? Abidechomai. Eagerly awaiting. Anticipating. Are we there yet? No, we're not. Are we there yet? No, we're not there yet. Right? We're eagerly awaiting. We find this in various places. Romans chapter 8, verses 23 to 25. And not only that, but we are, by the way, Paul wrote this, but not only that, but we also ourselves having the first fruit of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly the adoption as sons and daughters, the redemption of our body. Eagerly awaiting, apidechomai. Here's another one. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we await eagerly, apidechomai. The context of the passage is not talking about blood and guts, not talking about carnage. It's talking about the redemption of our bodies, the glorification of our bodies. Oh, my goodness. How about this one? First Corinthians one seven, just as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you all so that you are not lacking in any gift as you eagerly await the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, same author, Paul who wrote Romans and wrote First Thessalonians. How about Philippians 3? For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly wait for a Savior. Same word, apidechamai. The Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our body of lowly condition into conformity with His glorious body. By the exertion of the power that he has even subject all things to himself. What are we supposed to be looking for? Are we supposed to be looking for signs in the sky? Yeah, one sign in the sky. The appearing of Christ. That sign in the sky. Notice all of these passages here. Paul focuses on the revelation of Christ, the redemption of our bodies, he never mentions any blood and guts anywhere in the passage. Hebrews nine twenty-eight. Now, depending on what your persuasion is, some people think that Paul wrote Hebrews; others think that there was another author. I won't tell you what I think because it's not—that's not important right now. And so Christ also, having been offered once, to hear the saints. Uh, to bear the sins of many, sorry, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await signs. Him. Apidecomai. Titus 2, look at all of these texts, man. Titus 2, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live righteously, sensibly, and godly in this present age, looking for prosodecomai. That's from the head watch. It's like, oh, oh is it over there? That's that's kind of what, prosodecomai. Looking towards or looking for the blessed hope. Help us and the appearing of glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Wow. The word hope and eagerly awaiting are never used, considering the Great Tribulation. It's never used. And believers in the epistles, that is the economy of the church, are never told to anticipate signs in the heavens. Except for the appearing. Never told to wait for his wrath. By the way, God pours his wrath out on unbelievers. It would be cruel for him to pour his wrath out on those who believe. Because The wrath of God is reserved for those who don't believe. Can't be that one. We are to await at any moment the revelation of Jesus Christ. And by the way, that has implications for how we live as well. The coming Antichrist, how about that? Well, the point was made in the previous counter-argument. We don't have to go through that. Did it say that we are supposed to look for the Antichrist? No, it doesn't say that we're supposed to look for the Antichrist. We're supposed to look for the true Christ. For the true Messiah. Not a quack teacher. The Antichrist said by Paul to be a judgment against those who don't believe. That's 2 Thessalonians, folks. Paul references, by the way, whom we got from Christ... As a judgment to those who don't believe. You want a ruler who, who, who will treat you bad? Well, then I'll give one to you. Paul never says for the saints of Thessalonica to be looking for the Antichrist, nor to be looking for Christ, but to be looking for Christ the Lord based upon the language of the passage. It's very simple. Can't be that one. Sorry. How about escaping tribulation? Are we just hiding and ducking from tribulation? Because we live out here in America? Well, the audience Paul was writing to, they were already suffering intense affliction. That's found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verses 5 and 6. Okay. Okay. there's a difference in tribulation the tribulation or affliction that we're suffering through is due to the spirit of the age by the way have you seen that this world is controlled by the evil one do you know that doesn't like us very much that's due to the spirit of the age but the seven year tribulation that's not due to the activity of the spirit of the age that's due to God pouring out His wrath on all the, on all the globe. We get to skip that. Again, the wrath of God is concerning people who do not believe. Okay? In the places that Paul writes about eschatology, this does not mention any blood and guts in these passages according to the rapture doctrines we're looking at in this text. So, it's not that we, you know, We don't go around looking for affliction. Hey, could you please afflict me? Said no Christian ever. Okay? And if it comes, we suffer under His grace. But that doesn't have anything to do with this, though. Okay? Can't be that. How about multiple comings? Let me go through this really fast. The word coming is specific depending on the details of the context. If I say that I love my wife... And I love my dog. Does that mean that I love my wife like my dog? Even though I'm using the same word she said, I hope not. (laughs) (laughs) Of course not. The, the, The word is always understood within its context. It's the same for this. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, let's go through Matthew 26 very briefly. General affliction throughout history. We see this. With Thessalonica, they're going through it. They're suffering severe persecution. That's not, that's not a surprise to us. In Matthew 24, there's great affliction that has potential to extinguish life itself. Jesus says to his disciples, hey, this is going to be so bad, if it weren't for the sake of the elect and cutting it short, all life would be extinguished. That's pretty bad. That's not found in 1st Thessalonians 4. Great affliction not mentioned, that is, great tribulation not mentioned, but it's mentioned there, though, in Matthew 24. He says it several times, as a matter of fact. Great affliction primarily associated with Israel. That's found in verses 16 to 21. That's where he tells them to flee, to leave, go to the mountains of Judea, right? Antichrist is not mentioned in 1 Thessalonians. Great general, great general affliction associated with the Antichrist in verse 24. Heavenly signs are not mentioned at his coming in 1st Thessalonians. Look, notice the details. Do this. This is fun. Go this afternoon, read Matthew 24, compare it with 1st Thessalonians 4. You'll find most of the details aren't there. Signs mentioned before his coming in Matthew 24, but not mentioned in 1st Thessalonians though. No mourning from those in Christ that is appearing. All hope is realized, right? That's what we're waiting on, the blessed hope. But mourning from that of the nations. The sign of the Son of Man appearing in the clouds. Everybody's going, oh no! Because judgment has come. That's why. But there isn't that language found in 1 Thessalonians 4. Details of Christ rise first. Those who are alive one archangel is mentioned, no angels gathering the saints. In 1 Thessalonians 4, we all go up with him together. There are no angels mentioned to collect us and take us to where he is. But yet, there's no archangel or shout mentioned in Matthew 24. And the angels gather the elect. Who's Israel, by the way? There's no weeping or gnashing of teeth mentioned by Paul in First Thessalonians. But there's weeping and gnashing of teeth in Matthew 24, though, because judgment has come. Notice all of these. No mention of the perseverance to the end for the catching up. There's a mention of persevering to the end for the entrance of the righteous reign of Christ. That's verse 13. Look at all of these details. It can't be any clearer. So this argument really is a non sequitur. Just because there are multiple quote-unquote comings described in scripture, it doesn't make the argument for pre-tribulationism false It doesn't make it false. The chips fall on whether or not the doctrine is biblical. That's where the chips fall Not how many comings there are Okay Oh my gosh, it, it, it frustrates me, but it's okay though Okay, I can't be it there is one thing that I want us to take a look at just briefly. Okay. How is the, the doctrine of the rapture usually taught? Now, I don't know if they have it ready back there. They don't have it ready. Oh, man. This individual here, uh, this production company, had basically set up... um. A video talking about the rapture and he's he's saying you know the the the, the rapture could come this week it could come uh, uh uh tomorrow or it could come and the guy who is the pastor of the church he disappears right his bible falls to the floor right and there's people that are left behind you know they're kind of going this that and the other they're looking around right and then the the, the camera cuts to this guy who kind of falls down on the ground kind of weeping right and then the, the the video fades to black, and then the the the, picture, the the sentence comes up: "Are you ready?" That's how that's how it ends. May I submit to you that is a very poor video. It's poor. Why? Why is it poor? Because the doctrine of the rapture is not a doctrine of fear. It is a doctrine of comfort. We don't scare people into the, into the church by using the rapture. Paul never writes it as a doctrine of fear. He writes it as a doctrine of comfort, specifically for those who remain and dead saints are gone. If Paul uses it as comfort, that doesn't give us the right to use it as a fear tactic. Oh, it's very bad. Mm. That's what's wrong with the messaging. couple of final remarks. The doctrine of the harpazo is for living saints, not for dead saints. Dead saints are resurrected. We who are alive and remain... If the Lord does not, if the Lord uh, tarries, we will be harpazoed. The doctrine of the harpazo is not to be one of fear or terror. It's never to be that. And if I find that you're doing that, you know what I'm going to do. Just kidding. No, actually not really. It is a doctrine of comfort and certainty for the believer. That's what this, this, that's what this doctrine is about. We believe, and God has granted us all of these benefits, one withstand, notwithstanding, we don't have to go through the great affliction. That's not for us. As a matter of fact, we are saved from that. Not just from the lake of fire but from that period grace and peace to all of you don't throw rocks at me just yet wait till I get down first wait till the service is over let's go ahead and pray may you be encouraged dear brethren and sisters concerning the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and his relation to his appearing let's pray Lord, thank you so much for your encouragement to us. Lord, that this doctrine is not for us to avoid as us as Western civilization or Americans. I understand why that argument's made. But Lord, this has everything to do with your glory. Not not anything else. I thank you so much, Lord, that we do not have to suffer your wrath we do pray for those who do not believe oh lord that they would come to the grace and knowledge of our lord jesus christ so that they may not face this if it comes we thank you so much lord for your encouragement given to us may we continue lord to be sharpened and strengthened by your word, for your glory, for it's in your son's name. Amen.